1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode has been sponsored
0: by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal stripes sweater. Several dresses I even wore on Morning America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. .com and definitely check out those shows as well. Alice Elliot Dark is the author of Fellowship Point, a novel. She's also the author of Think of England and two collections of short stories, In the Gloaming and Naked to the Waste. Her work has appeared in among others The New Yorker, Harper's Double Take Ploughshares, A Public Space, Best American Short Stories, Prize Stories, The O Henry Awards, and has been translated into many languages. In The Gloaming, a story was chosen by John Updike for inclusion in the best American short stories of the century and was made into films by HBO and Trinity Playhouse. Her nonfiction reviews and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many anthologies. She is a recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and an associate professor at Rutgers, Newark, in the English department and the MFA program. Welcome, Alice. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss fellowship point.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Great. I'm happy to have you.
2: <laughs> okay. I know I said you don't have to perform, but
0: I do, I would like you to describe Fellowship Point to people who have not read
2: it yet. Okay. Well, it's a big, long, 550-something-page book about three women: two women who are 80, and a young woman who's 26 how they interact about various subjects, the main one of which is what's going to happen to a beautiful piece of land in Maine that's owned by the two 80-year-olds. They have shares in a fellowship that has was started by the, one of them, great-great-great-grandfather, or great-great-grandfather, sorry, in 19, 1875. And they now it's the year two thousand. They're both 80, and one of them, Agnes, is single and has no children, so she can't pass her share to anybody. She's worried about what's going to happen if it goes to the children of her best friend, Polly, who's another shareholder, and her nephew, Archie, because there's been noise around about possibly developing the land, which totally horrifies her. And then another thread of the book is this young 26-year-old assistant editor who works in a publishing company in Manhattan, and she has the bright idea to ask Agnes to write a memoir. Agnes is a very popular children's book author, and she thinks if Agnes writes a memoir about how she came to write the books and what was her inspiration, that it will be really good for selling the books. And it will also be good for getting her ahead in her publishing career. So those are the basic, those are the basics. I love the scenes that take place in publishing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the whole thing, and even um, the aspiring writer, not aspiring writer, because she's already an author, but the the writer's block of the moments and and trying to figure out how to structure what's next, and uh, you you weaved in a breast cancer diagnosis or at, towards the beginning, and you had one line which I loved when she had said uh, you had said maybe the surgery would slice away her writer's block as if having some massive surgery would at least <laughs> yield some ancillary benefit of uh, producing writerly material.
2: <laughs> that, that would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, Agnes is kind of, she's kind of a tough, crusty character who has very high principles and she does her best to make good decisions in life, but she's also is capable of making remarks that sort of make people recoil because she's so <laughs> blunt. She's so blunt, which was very fun to write, you know, fun to write a person like that. I'm not like that. I always <laughs> thought when I got to be an old lady, I could be like that, but I'm not so sure. I mean,
0: having a having a filter is takes energy. You might as well... Uh... <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's true. It's true. It takes a lot of energy (laughs) and practice.
0: Yes. (laughs) But Agnes is also, you know, very sympathetic. Her husband goes through uh, a rejection where he does not get promoted. And she says something lovely like, this isn't a nice thing to do to this old man. You know, like, yeah. And, and that's actually,
2: to... that's actually Polly. Not Oh, I'm Agnes. sorry. I'm sorry. That's Polly. Polly, the best, Polly, the best friend who is married with three children has had a fourth child who died as a nine-year-old, but yeah, she, she's not as harsh as Agnes and she, yeah, she has more empathetic feelings like that in, in a toward, toward a lot of people. Oh. Well, at least you get uh, both sides of the coin
0: here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. On. And we know you as a as an author, then can have <laughs> both sides uh, uh,
2: represented. Um. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm either side, but it was fun to write into those. Uh, it was fun to write into those characteristics and just inhabit them for a while. And why make them eighty? That just happened. When the characters came in to my imagination, they were 80, and it took a few years for me to wonder, what am I doing? This feels like (laughs) career suicide to be writing about people who are old because they're not really traditional heroines. And then I just was so far in at that point, I thought, well, I really actually have a lot to say about old women. I've always loved old women, Since I was a child, my grandmother used to take me to visit her great-aunts, and they lived in what I came to understand was a nursing home, but I thought it was a mansion. um, (laughs) They were sisters together. They had candy. They painted plates. When I go over there, I just think, they really have the life. This is it. (laughs) This this is it. And um, ever since then, I was kind of fascinated by older women because I noticed – early that people didn't pay attention to them. So I thought they got to have a lot of freedom and were able to be in the world without having to answer for a lot, you know, and I always gravitate in a party or something to the old woman in the room because I think "Eh, there's stuff going on there that no one else is bothering to figure out, but I'm curious.
0: It's almost like people don't want to acknowledge that soon that will be
2: them. It's like, I if think they... that, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And yeah, there's something, I don't know with biology, you know, that once you're not of child producing age that you're extraneous to the biological uh, needs of the species or I don't know what it is, but we all know it you know, once you get to be a certain age, you start to feel a difference. And then it it just keeps going. And it's kind of a fascinating thing. I really felt as I was writing this, and I was inhabiting these women, I started this when I was in my 50s, I'm in my 60s now, they were older than me. And uh, I really felt like these are, we're like wasting a lot of political energy in this country by not having older women be much more of a force than they are because the older women I know are very active. They're vital. They're keep, they keep up with everything. They're just the same, but older, you know, they have physical things, but a lot of them don't have any other deficits and yet they're shunted, shunted aside. So I got to be very, uh, you know, sort of politically motivated to, Make sure that I portray them as being highly viable citizens. Interesting, yeah. I keep uh, kind of shouting from the rooftops
0: over here about how huge readers older women are, and how nobody bothers marketing to them because, you know, my. Everyone in my family, all I do is see older women commenting on Facebook even now and um, being massive consumers and very engaged with the material. And they do have time to read for the most part and are super smart and engaged and thoughtful. And yet everyone's trying to get, you know, millennials who have like 8,000 things going on and might not you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel people miss the mark sometimes in not doing campaigns. So I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm doing some presentations to nursing homes and I'm like, <laughs> made this like a, a priority.
2: That's so terrific because I've really found being out with this book that women, let's say, starting at 55, but especially if they're around 75 to 85 themselves. And even I've gotten letters from people in their 90s they are so grateful to have a big book where two 80 year old women are the main characters and they have a lot going on in their lives and they they're just so grateful to see it because that reflects their reality and they don't really have that reality reflected very much in any uh, in any forum and i agree with you about the marketing because as i've been doing this i've been thinking there's a huge market that's not huge. being marketed to
0: yep i know i shouldn't have revealed the secret of mine
2: <laughs> <laughs> well it's i mean i guess it's my secret too because now that i've figured this out i'm going to i want to i want to figure out how to get this book into the hands of more people who I know will appreciate it at a level and in a different way than younger readers. I've had lots of younger readers, lots of letters from men, lots of, all kinds of people who I, I didn't know what the market would be for this book. No one ever really knows, but I did find out that it's an identity book for older women, which is really gratifying to me. Well, you think about how
0: many people talk about how, Isolating it feels not to be able to connect with someone in fiction, right? We, there's so much talk about the power of having novels or memoirs to make you feel less alone. But what if you are looking for that and then there's almost nothing to grab onto? Um, exactly. Makes you feel even even worse. And so I feel like you know production from a range of viewpoints has expanded in some areas, and yet some are still sort of. Need to be dusted off. So I love what in other all I'm trying to say. I love what you're doing, and I didn't mean to say that this is my this idea, not yours. Yours is obviously no.
2: I totally understand. I do, and you're in a position to really make massive advances in this area. I'm not, but I totally applaud that this is something that you're really thinking about because it's out there. I mean, my grandmother until probably.
0: I don't know, six months before she passed away at 93. Every time we talked, the first thing we asked was, what are you reading? Mm-hmm. What are you reading? And, even, and my husband's grandmother, she would come here and she's like, oh, look at the books. And she would just sit and read every time she visited the whole time. And all they wanted, they just wanted to talk. And I'm not basing this on a sample set of two. This is obviously much bigger, but. Um,
2: <laughs> it's also yeah. a fact that 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 the people who are now between 75 and 95, let's say, They grew up in a reading era, too. Yes, yes. When it was, you know, when you would go to a dinner party and it would be, let's talk about this book. Yes. Instead of let's talk about this TV show or this movie or this politician. It was like everybody had read the books. Yes. You know, so it was it was a common uh, conversation. I remember that so well when I was growing up because I was lucky enough to grow up around a reading family. But that doesn't happen anymore. You know, you don't go to a dinner party and everybody's just read the same book. Maybe a very literary dinner party. (laughs) Maybe a very literary dinner party, but not just, you know, a suburban dinner party. True. It's it's different now. But then it really was like that. Well, not just
0: the same book, but there were only like a couple TV shows. I mean, I feel like that's something that we've all lost. Yeah. There's there's just, you know, there's so much choice that we don't bond about the same things at all. I know It's shows, really movies, cool. books. I mean, it's nice that everybody gets to customize, but it's also really not nice.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder about that too. I mean, I, I do feel something's lost by having every case, ta- every taste catered to it every, at every moment, you know, and not having some, some common, I don't know. I mean it's it's a big subject.
0: Yeah, we don't have to tackle that.
2: <laughs> I am curious though in your in your
0: touring and publicity and and getting to know your reader audience what has been most successful in terms of reaching those readers? Like what have you done? How do how do you think I mean obviously you have such a giant platform because you're so amazing but like what have you done to to ferret out the readers who need this the most?
2: Well, I'm still working mm-hmm. on that because I think that I, you know, I didn't, I really didn't think of who was going to be the reader for the book. It just seemed like, you know, a big story and characters to me. But now I'm trying to think about how to reach older readers and go into, like you said, retirement places where there are book groups and book clubs. And I mean, I have ideas about it too. Maybe we should talk. Yeah,
0: we should talk offline about it. (laughs) We'll talk (laughs) offline. I know I'm doing a, I'm doing like a class in this um, elderly, like continuing education thing. And I'm going up to a nursing home in Massachusetts. And anyway, I don't know. Uh, Okay. Off we'll, we'll get back to that. Let's talk about, (laughs) (laughs) tell me about how you go about, structuring a book where you know there's so much going on over, over the course of so much and that you're going to have this, you might want like a saga, right? Like a 500 juicy pages of information and twists and turns. Do you know that at the outset and how do you have to structure it? Do you have like Do you have all your plans laid out or do you just start with a little idea and you're like, I'll just, I'll give this as many pages as it needs to get where I I went. And then I know when I've reached it.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally,
0: when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, B, I didn't know at the outset. The characters came to me one by one. I knew when I got the first character, which was Virgil, who doesn't have a big part in the book, but he... He was the first character who came to me. And when he came to me, he came in such a way that I knew, oh, I'm in a novel. You know, it just felt like it had a different quality to it. It was, I think it's the first time I've ever really written purely from imagination, except for the settings Philadelphia and Maine, real places, not Fellowship Point, but Maine. But the characters were all made up before I've always taken a little bit from here and there from people I know. And this time they just appeared whole as themselves. And I started putting them together and having them talk to each other and watching what they said to each other and thinking about their interactions. And that taught me how, who they were. I always like to test out characters by putting them in kind of extreme situations. Like, and then what do they do? Like, (laughs) get lost in the wilderness or something, you know, and just see like how they behave. It's a good little exercise. But then I, then I, a couple of things led to the structure of the book, which was one was I saw a mini series based on trollop novel. And I thought, Oh my God, I just, you know, I really love these big plots with twists, turns, subplots, all of it. I want to try and learn how to write one. So that came. And then the other thing that happened was visited my friend Tina in California, and she she was very involved in land trusts and with University of California cataloging all their land. And she told me that so many of the donors were women that you know who had donated their ranch that they had inherited, you know, thousands of acres kind of ranches. And I started researching women land donors to and women founders of national parks and all of this it was really fascinating subject not really a well-known history in this country of that kind of conservation and donation by women and it I started having a thought that women have not been able to control the land that they owned for very long 1900 was the first date that women in all 50 states, well, the states that existed in 1900, were allowed to control land. Otherwise, it was brother, husband, father, uncle, cousin. You know, any man could have control over it before the woman could. So then I just thought, women have a different feeling about landowning than men do because it's not part of our DNA. It really isn't. You know, we've lived on the borrowed land and sort of the goodwill of others for a long time and it sort of has made it possible i think for a lot of women to not hold that as an identity you know they pass through the land they love the land and they love the land so much that they don't want it developed they prefer to give it to a trust or a park or something so once i had all those elements together i had the idea How I structured it after that was trial and error. You know, lots of pages, lots of throwing away. Wow. And how long did it take for the whole book to be written? I started in 2011 and I turned it in to my agent in 2018. Then I did a couple of drafts with my editor, Mary Subarucci, and she was at Simon & Schuster and then she moved to Scribner and took me with her over to Scribner and then I think I wrote the end of the book when it was already typeset. I just was not happy with how it ended. So I came up with a new ending. So I would say the whole thing was done by 2020. Wow. Nine years, nine years, but not nine full years because I don't work during my teaching semesters, not on something big like this. It's too big. I couldn't keep it. In my head, and keep all my student work and everything in my head at the same time. And tell me more about your teaching. I teach at Rutgers Newark in the MFA program and in the English department. And the semester's in full swing right now. Oh my gosh. Thanks for even taking the time. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's good too, because now
0: you have like a built in audience, right? Hands on <laughs> marketers.
2: Yeah. <you know? laughs> well, I'm not so sure they would be very, you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For lots of reasons. So I'm not, you know, I, I've i mentioned my grad students are interested because they are working to become writers themselves. My undergrads have I've mentioned as I'm teaching lit, well, I'm a writer too, and I kind of understand. And they're like, okay, <laughs> okay, teach. okay, teach, move on. <laughs> oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> so funny. Can you Talk more about how you got to this place in your life, how you became a teacher and a writer. And if you knew from a, when you were a child, if this is the path you were going on or how you I got was here. a
2: child writer, I was a child writer, I think I started at about seven, and kept going, kept going, kept going. And then when I got through school, I stopped during the college years, I just got to a place where I felt people like me didn't become real writers. You know, it was wonderful at school, and I went to a school that had a lot of literary stuff going on. But I just didn't live in a culture where people became, they were more, you know, very sophisticated consumers of literature, music, art, but not creators. So it took me a little while to get back to it. And it really happened after college, when I just found that there was nothing I wanted. I mean, there were a lot of things I wanted to do, but I was too shy to go try and do them. I was really desperately shy. So I took up writing again and I wrote poetry until I was about 30. And then I started writing prose and just kept going from there, started teaching, started working at Rutgers in 2000. And yeah, now it's now it's a good balance because i have one son he's also trying to be a writer or he is a writer he just wrote a big novel and he once he left in 2010 i all of a sudden could manage everything before that i always feel like you can do three things not four things you know something something you know a child job writing you know, and then house friends, blah, 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 put all that in. I mean, you could, you could parse it out to eight things, but I think you can do three things with full heart. And after that, you're doing things a little bit less. So after he left and, you know, kids take even more than a third. Yes. uh, (laughs) they're like in your head. So once he moved out, I really, that's when things started getting a little more organized for me. And it's no, it's no surprise that I started this book in 2011 because I just had the headspace that I hadn't had since he was born to write a big book. Yeah. I say that, i uh, it wasn't until I got divorced and had every other
0: weekend without my kids that I even like, oh. like again, that's is like, that the, you, that's how,
2: that, how I wrote your book. That's how I've done basically everything. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I I totally get it.
0: Yeah, there's no way I could have. I mean, even still, I could barely, you know. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, these kids, look at them, just uh, <laughs> <laughs> because when when and also that you have to drop like I I will drop anything anytime if someone of has course. an issue, right? And then of course I still you still do. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's it. Like so. I yeah. think that's
2: forever. I think that's forever too.
0: <laughs> so what's next for you? You have this big book out. Congratulations. It's amazing. You're
2: teaching. Like what next? I'm writing another book and after that I probably will write another. <laughs> you know, at this <laughs> at this stage I just I really want to just be writing full time. I'm not quite finished with teaching. There's still things I want to do in that part of my career because Yeah, they're just things left, but I'm looking forward to being a full-time writer. And when I am, I'm going to go at it pretty hard until I just feel like, okay, enough. And then I'll just enjoy looking at the ocean or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I picture my future.
0: (laughs) This is totally inappropriate. You don't have to answer this. I'm always really interested with people who have let their hair go gray or white or whatever. You don't have to talk about it and I could cut this question but I'm curious.
2: I'm happy to talk about it. So I had very dark hair that people called black hair. It was very dark. And it's I started getting white hair, I guess in my 30s. And then I started at a, I guess when I was about 40 I started doing suburban blonde because I had enough, you know, I had enough gray hair by that point it wasn't really black anymore it was turning gray and then it and then at a certain point I guess something happened that I didn't color it fast enough and I noticed that it was actually white underneath not gray anymore and I thought okay well that I like that you know I can live with that but it is funny you know women love it and men tell you know my friends will say that their husband said don't you dare do that it's it's really there's a big gender divide about the white hair thing interesting I think it looks gorgeous thank Uh, you
0: (laughs) I did read an article I was debating if I should just let Myself go gray, which is sort of selfishly motivated question. And I did. There was a whole thing in the Times about how women think it's cool, and men are just like they don't want their wives necessarily to be. Exactly. all Exactly.
2: Yeah. I've run oh. into that so much, and I don't really understand. I mean, I guess it makes them think they'll look older if they yeah. look like if they're with a woman who is not afraid to identify as being an older woman. I mean, I think it's that's their perspective. It's not women's perspective at all. I mean, women. You know, women have very different ideas about how they feel good about themselves, you know, and I just knew I would feel good not doing all that coloring anymore. It's so boring. So boring. Expensive if you go to a place, which I did sometimes, sometimes I did it myself. All of that, I just was like, oh, if I could just get rid of that part of my life, I'd be so happy but it is complicated. It's it's complicated. I've never looked back. I'm happy with it. But I do notice that people immediately think of me as older. And then they'll say, your face doesn't look old. I'm like, well, you know, I don't know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think I look 25 either, even if I'm still so blonde, you know. I think it depends a lot on what the color is. Like if you if you were to do it and you find you have like a gorgeous gray, it makes a lot of difference. And if the texture is nice and all of that. Yeah. My mom has a friend with this like a amazing bob, like
0: beautiful grays and whites. And I was like, but
2: how would I know? Maybe I have that.
0: Maybe know, it would look like might. that, but I would
2: never know. Probably you not. <laughs> I mean, it definitely saw a lot of people in the pandemic yeah, let it happen. Yeah. and. So many people, I thought, looked so much better with the gray hair because it kind of matches your skin tone. You, you change when you get older, you know, and your skin tone looks great. And then they went back, and you know, I was a little bit sad. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm more gray,
0: I think, than my mom at this point. So anyway. Really?
2: <laughs> Yeah, my mother is gray and she envies this hair. <laughs> she keeps trying to like put platinum coloring in her hair and it, it doesn't turn this color. This is not a color you can get out of a bottle. It just, no. it's like an absence of something. That it's you very can't, cool. You it's can't very, very cool. Well, but I love thank it. Thank you. And sorry thank for you.
0: talking about that. When no. I mean.
2: no, it's, you know, what else is, I'm always happy to talk. I could have talked the whole time about it. Yeah. <laughs> My
0: kids actually have a whole section in school this year about hair and how it's so central to identity and it's allowing them to teach about all these different things. And
2: I'm like, Oh, that's right. great. That's so smart.
0: It's yeah. so true. It's so true. I should I should offer you up as a speaker for second
2: grade. I love to come in. <laughs> Pull okay. my hair. Yeah. It's real. It's real. <laughs> awesome
0: all right well alice thank you so much for the fun chat and congratulations on your book and let's stay in touch and start our own you know yes really interesting marketing
2: approach Be happy too okay happy to. thank you so much so Honor honored to meet you honestly big things you're doing have been so exciting to all women in the publishing world oh thank you She's <laughs> trying,
0: trying hard, doing more than four things. And I was like, oh no, she's uh, no. talking to me. <laughs> I think you're doing like 20 things. But anyway, All right. Well, I'm honored to talk to you as well. So thank you. Okay. All right. Have a great day. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.